The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Today's guest is Evan McMullen, and I'm I'm thrilled to have you here, Evan. Thanks. Great to be here, Brian. Thanks for having me. And uh, you may know Evan most recently for um, being courageous enough to run for president of the United States and for getting 21% of the vote in the state of Utah in an attempt to prevent Donald Trump from becoming president. Before that, what you may not know is that Evans lived uh, a life largely of service, and it seems like every time there's a chance, almost like a a good version of Michael Corleone, every time there's a chance to get something for himself, he's dragged back into service for the rest of us. And so thanks for that, and thanks for being, uh, being here talking to us today about the state of the world. Um, Evan, I think that experiences and the prisms through which we view those experiences, particularly experiences growing up, are a lot of what make us who we are. And so I want to start there because I think what you've done is is so brave and challenging and rare, which is to directly reach across to people who hold really different views mm-hmm. and say there's a, a higher ideal to which we now mm-hmm. have to hold. And we can argue about a whole bunch of that stuff later, Right. but the house is burning. And so let's stop the burning and let's get out of the house. And then we can argue about how to rebuild it. That's right. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I'm, what I'm wondering is like how you grew up. I know you grew up in Utah in a religious family, Mormon, but when did you first become aware that there was a government and like, how did you think about its purpose? Was there talk of civics or civic duty in mm-hmm. your in your home? Well, I was, just to clarify, I was born in Utah, and a lot of people then assumed that I was raised there, but I was actually raised in a town outside of Seattle. Uh, and I, it was a, we grew up in a, a rural area, or I grew up in a rural area. We had a few acres and had a couple of horses and sheep and chickens and that sort of thing. So, you know, I, I, uh, I worked hard growing up. Uh, but my family was lightly engaged in civic activity. We knew uh, a local uh, senator, a state senator. Uh, I volunteered in campaigns as a kid. Uh, eventually, I was a, a page in the state legislature. So those were my early experiences with government. So how, what year were you born? 1976. So you were born just after Watergate. I'm 50, so I was eight years old. In 1974, my mom made me, and it was a gift she gave me. She made me watch his resignation speech. Yeah. And so uh, my view of government was colored from an early age Mm -hmm. by this national disgrace. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, as you were growing up, was there an echo of that, a shadow of that? Or or because you were four years old when Reagan came into office, was it somehow different to you? I mean, I, I wish I could tell you that at that young age, I was paying attention to what our president was doing and who it was, but I just can't honestly say that. I will say that when I was in third grade, my mother took m- myself and my sister back to Philadelphia where her biological family was. She had been adopted into a family in, in Arizona. And as a part of that trip, we came down to D.C. And so as a third grader, we were seeing the sites, going to the Smithsonian and the monuments and all these things. And even at that young age, there was that city, Washington, had such an impact on me. It just, I, I felt that there, you know, I felt the grandeur of, of the city, of the capital, of the seat of our government. But then also, I had this feeling, even as a third grader, that there was, that I would be back, that there would be something for me to do there. You mean you felt like there was a utility that that you had something to bring to bear on what was happening. I felt like I I just had this feeling when I was that young that 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 I would be that I would be back and that there was you know work for me to do and it, it was uh, perhaps just an interest. I mean, how could you not be interested with these grand buildings and the Washington Monument and and uh, the Lincoln Memorial and the Jefferson? How could you not be interested and intrigued by all of that? Uh, you know, and I barely understood any of it as a as a kid, but I did understand that great people had made it had made a lot of sacrifices for us to be where we are as a country even then, and and that was all enshrined by what I saw in Washington. And I, I again, I just had some connection and some thought that that I would be back. 
That word sacrifice is so important, I think, mm-hmm. because we don't really, I, you know, I think you and I see a lot of stuff differently on a, a micro level. Like you and I probably see specific political things quite differently, but I think we agree that this, we don't live in a society that truly values the kind of sacrifice you're talking about anymore. If we ever, if the society ever did sort of embrace it as a whole, it does feel like, or doesn't it feel like to you that this notion of service and sacrifice as, as an honor for the country has, has somehow been flipped to where you're supposed to be rewarded for uh, and somehow get a prize if you're willing to engage. Or uh, maybe even more uh, fundamentally, you believe that the sacrifice just isn't necessary. So I, I think what you're describing is accurate. And I think it it has a lot to do with the fact that over the last several decades, great sacrifices uh, haven't always been required. I mean, we did we faced the, the threat of, of Islamist terrorism. That's still a threat that we face after uh, that, that we face now. After 9/11, many people have sacrificed even their lives and, and, and other gone through other hardships uh, to stand up to Islamist terrorism. But that even that didn't amount to, for example, what people experienced, I think, in the Revolutionary War and the Civil War. Uh, so I guess what I'm saying is just for the last several decades, our basic rights, our system of government, um, all of this, uh, our, our, our basic security for the most part, for the last several decades, it's, it's mostly been sort of on path. And so we haven't thought of any of those things as things that we, most of us need to sacrifice in order to have, because they're, right. they're just there already. And, and just even as a point of uh, a difference, though we see it the same, mm-hmm. you talk about Islamist terrorism. Uh, I understand why you name it that I've given a lot of thought to whether to call it radical Islamist terrorism. Mm-hmm. I tend to believe the linguists who say the word radical disappears and then people who are the, the great majority of people in those faiths feel maligned. And I think correctly, but I would say also, um, if you just look at the shootings at abortion clinics that have happened or at black churches that have happened, these events have certainly happened in the country, but they are still, as, as you said, other than 9-11, they've been a uh, small enough scale that we can, as a culture, think, fool ourselves into believing it's not our problem to solve. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And on the, the, the point about how we, we think about or how we talk about this, this terrorism uh, issue, you know, I do think that it's uh, important on one hand to call it what it is. And that's, you hear that a lot from conservatives. But on the other hand, to be accurate and sensitive as well. And so you have, for example, President Trump now talking about Islamic terrorism, which suggests that it has uh, legitimacy vis-a-vis the, re- the religion of Islam, which it doesn't, which is why many people in the faith, of, in, in, Muslims, uh, are more comfortable with people calling it Islamist terrorism because you have these terrorists who... Uh, who see themselves as acting on behalf of, you know, their version of Islam, which is a twisted version of Islam. And so you call it Islamist. So anyway, that's an sure. No, no, I think it's important yeah. distinction because yeah. I'm, I'm thinking about under the banner of heaven. And of course you don't yeah. want to be painted with that brush, the Warren no, Jeff's brush. No, right. Cause and, yeah. Because it doesn't apply, actually, doesn't apply. because that's yeah. not Mormonism. It's the same thing with Muslims. And but um, yeah. but you could see how people would say, and this is yeah. why when you, in the beginning you make it personal, yeah. when people talk about him mm. in a shorthand, what did John mm. Krakauer write about? Those crazy Mormons. Yeah. Now that's not true, yeah. but that's, that's, that's inaccurate. Yeah. But that is what, you know, go on Amazon. That's what yeah. people would say. And oh, so oh, I think if you flip say. it and, yeah. and you just understand that, it helps yeah. you to understand why the average Muslim feels absolutely right. There's a lot we could say about that entire topic and the way Muslims are being treated in the country. Right. Well, now. What's so important yeah. is that you and I are having this conversation. Yeah. So we're able to engage in it mm-hmm. without invective, mm-hmm. without raised voices. In fact, mm-hmm. looking in your eyes, we're mm-hmm. actually trying to find the common ground. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's happened that made, that has made it so difficult and are you able to get over the sad? Like, I feel this incredible sadness 
when I look at what's happening now mm -hmm. at the culture's inability to have these conversations mm -hmm. without a tremendous amount of rancor. How do you, how mm. do you parse it for yourself? You've been around the world as a mm. CIA officer. You've, mm. you've personally sacrificed. How are you mm. able to sit in a centered place with me and discuss mm. this stuff? Why aren't they? And, and what can we do to change it? Well, these are really big and important questions, Brian. I mean, my experience is informed by a couple of things. You mentioned my CIA service. You know, when you start work at the CIA, the first, one of the first things they beat into you is that you work for the president, no matter who the president is. The president can be a Republican or a Democrat or neither. If the president, you know, uh, was elected and, and of course he or she would be, then, then that's who you work for regardless of party. So, so you, you learned that you're serving the country is another way of putting it rather than a political party or an ideology. Sure. So that's part of it. The other part of it is, you know, spending so much time overseas, you just learned that there are all kinds of ways to talk and walk and think. And, and they're not, you know, there, there are many ways to do something, uh, right. Uh, it's not always just one way. And so you just become, I think traveling and living abroad helps you understand that just the, the value in the diversity that the world naturally offers. So I'll just offer that. But here, but here in the United States, we do have this a serious problem, a serious division where people, some people on the right and some people on the left, will not or cannot talk to each other. And that has helped us end up in the situation where we are today. And I'm speaking to somebody who believes that Donald Trump is a, poses a, a threat to the, to the Republic. Um, but, you know, what I've seen overseas is that when people polarize, but when a country's population splits and, and they no longer talk to each other, and it can be down religious or ethnic lines or others, political lines, uh, then those people become vulnerable to demagogues who will come exploit those divisions, turn those people even further against each other, tell, tell them lies about each other, uh, and then you end up in a, in a bad situation. Now, I'll just wrap up what I'm saying here with the, just this, and that is that I am still, though, optimistic right now because uh, what we have now is a situation in which I believe our democracy is being threatened. And that is creating an opportunity for people on the right and the left, despite our differences in policy issues, to say, wait a second, fundamentally, we need to defend our democracy and our basic rights, our adherence to the Constitution. We can agree on that. That's existing common ground. Let's, let's uh, embrace it and defend it. And, and then later on, we can have the debates about other issues. Yes, I want to get granular on some of this stuff because I think it's really Im important to define our terms. Because I, I don't think most of us in the world, in our, our country, are really operating with working definitions of autocratic, dictatorship, authoritarianism. I think these words tend to just uh, sort of, they, they, they become easy to tune out in a way. We have so there are these great dissident writers, you know, mm. who've come from uh, Russia or Eastern Bloc countries who've written these lists about, you know, the, look, these are the signs and this is what to look for. Yeah. That said, because they're written by dissidents, I think many Americans are just like, well, they're hysterical and they're coming from their place of history. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about from your personal experience mm -hmm. going abroad, what you see now? Can you define the constitutional crisis and can you define your working definition of an autocracy or an authoritarian, mm -hmm. authoritarian leader or mm -hmm. a demagogue? Yeah, well, all of those words come with their own strict definitions. And you're right that people have their own interpretations on those definitions of those definitions and all that. But I think the most fundamental thing that we, we need to understand and the most fundamental issue at stake here is where does our freedom and liberty come from? Okay. So our founders believed that we all were born with that. If you're religious, if you're a person. Well, it comes faith, from John Locke. I mean, no, earlier it comes from John Locke. It comes from right. liber the old libertarian liberal theology about this, which is mm -hmm. that these inalienable rights 
are divine in man. But, but atheists like me can interpret that a different way, which is you're born as a natural person and in, 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 in the ability to self-determine. That's right. So if you're, if you're religious like me, uh, you, you can say, look, the, these come, these rights come from the fact that we're created by God and he wants us to be free, that sort of thing. If you're not, you can be an atheist like you and still say, well, I think it's just it, there's man's fundamental nature, man and woman's fundamental nature yeah. is to be free. That's right. I mean, it's and it's, so you have to think long and hard about uh, the the ways you want to restrain and constrain that freedom. That's right. And we give up freedom. We agree to give up freedom to protect other freedoms. Yes. Right. The higher freedoms. Yes. That's right. A, the 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 freedom to live in a democ- democratic society without violence. Right. That's Locke right. would talk about there are reasons to see some authority That's right. to the authorities mostly having to do with issues of safety. That's and right. And defining levels of, of safety and gain. Safety and, you know, roads and things like yeah. that. We give up, we give up, we pay taxes, and these it's the social contract. So we, you know, we do these things, but that's not, the fact that we give up freedom isn't an argument against the fact that we are innately free, yes. right? Yes. And so that's the most important thing. So you start there. And then you, and what our founders realized is that a government should be designed around these natural realities. And so if we are innately free, then that means, but we still have, you know, needs for security and whatnot, then we end up in the situation where we're willingly giving up some power to the government so they can protect our, our remaining rights. And we agree to do that. We do it with, with our own consent. And so, therefore, we have a government that derives only its power from that from the people, and the power that they have it still remains. It's on loan to the government, and it's accountable still to the people. They're servant leaders. That's right. Ideally, they're servant leaders. That's that's right. Which our president right now would no sooner understand as a concept. Well, I, it doesn't seem it doesn't seem so. So the point is then, if a government then deviates from a government that is accountable to the people, that understands that it derives its power only from the people, that's when we start to get into all of these scary words like authoritarian and autocratic and all of this, which basically all of them touch on different pieces of this idea that no longer is the power ultimately uh, belonging to the people, but rather to a person or to a group of people. And that's a problem. But if mo- So here's where I, we agree. Right. Yeah. Actually, hundred. We agree, hundred percent. What seems challenging is that for most people, and I'm sure you saw this talking around the country. Most people exist in a state of powerlessness. They believe they're powerless. They've long felt powerless to this monolithic government. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering how to communicate. So what we see when we see, uh, like I, I'm, I was trained as a lawyer, even though I never practiced. Mm-hmm. So I've read a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. I still read a lot of it. So I understand checks and balances. Most people, they heard checks and balances in ninth grade. It never really applied to them. So the executive sets out some instructions mm-hmm. based upon what they believe the legislative have said that they can do. Mm-hmm. And then the judiciary rules upon that. Mm-hmm. And usually, if the judiciary, traditionally, historically, when the judiciary rules that a behavior the executive wants to engage in isn't legal, the executive of its own volition, stops engaging in that behavior. What I'm wondering is, is this question of an autocracy, what occurs when the executive sends messages somehow that they are no longer going to follow the limits set forth by the judiciary? And how do we, what do we do about that? And how do we monitor it? Well, again, I know I'm at the heart of it, but this is yeah, what's important. This, this is and you're thinking about this every day. I'm a screenwriter. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, no, no, I'm just is, a screenwriter who can talk. No, no. This is what you do. I know you think about this too. I mean, it's obvious because you're, you're asking these very good questions and you're, you're really touching upon something that uh, is the crux of it. You know, we have these balance of powers uh, but they're only as good as our adherence to them, as our respect for them. And as uh, we're only as good as, as the respect that our leaders have for them. So, for example, conservatives right now, they're 
they're pleased with with uh, Donald Trump's recent Supreme Court nomination because he's an originalist. He's going to interpret the Constitution as defined. He's 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 somebody or as written. He's somebody who thinks a lot about the separation of powers. And in, in my view, right now, that's something that's badly needed. So all of that's great uh, for conservatives, um, but regardless of how you want the court to be, whether you want it to be appointed by Barack Obama or Donald Trump or whatever it is, if the president at the time doesn't respect the power of the Supreme Court, the authority of the Supreme Court, or of the other courts, then it really starts to have no power. Um, the Supreme Court doesn't have its own army. It doesn't. It has a modest police force that guards its building, um, but but it is dependent upon our adherence to these basic norms of our system. And and if those are discarded, then we're in a, a world of hurt. Right. So who determines when they're discarded? Who's supposed to hold them to account? Now, there's this. A lot of people have written about you know. It's, and to me, it's fantasy at this point. You know, the 25th and then the fourth uh, article of the 25th, which says if Pence and a bunch of leaders think Trump isn't um, capable, they can uh, ask him to they can force him to step aside. Mm -hmm. But they don't seem to have an appetite to challenge Mm -hmm. right now. And Mm -hmm. so do you think that there is this in an inexorable slide? Because, again, I, I keep trying to find the language that'll explain it. What's so scary? Because people ask me online, like, what what is so scary about this? And I think what it is, is that if the branches, if the executive doesn't respect the authority of the judiciary and the legislative branch won't somehow force the question, then are we already living in a dictatorship of sorts? Well, if that happens, then I would say that if there are no checks, if no checks are working, if if there are no checks then then we are then that would mean that that the executive branch and and the head of the executive branch would be having his or her way in this case president trump uh so i don't think we're there yet i hope we don't get there why don't you think we're there i don't well i don't think we're there because i don't think we were in that situation with president obama i think he and many people on both sides of the aisle do think that he took some liberties and the court said, Hey, you can't go that far. And he respected those that's decisions. What I'm saying. When they said that he that's did right. respect the decision. That's right. So you could say, well, he's a constitutional uh, lawyer in the first place that so he should have known better. Fair enough. But when the court said no, it stopped. Oh yeah. I would say that about but any of the, yes, I think sure. the job of the executive is to push when it's your guy in office, you well, want them to push. Then you want, uh, what I want is then yeah. the, the, the judiciary to rule. And then absolutely, you have to hew to that That's if you're right. the executive branch, or That's to right. me, the thing does, doesn't function as a, as our representative democracy is designed. That's right. And so when you start to see, I mean, you're touching on this, and it's such a critical thing, and you, you know from your legal background, but it's just so critical. If all of a sudden the executive branch will not heed the decisions of the courts, then we're in a tough place. But we're we're talking a lot about the judiciary versus the executive. There's also the legislative versus the executive and similar questions about, uh, you know, different in nature because they're different branches, different, you know, beasts. But will the legislative branch, will Congress uh, provide a check on President Trump in this case? Uh, And that's, I think, an open question, too. And the signs aren't that positive. Yeah, you worked under Boehner and you worked under Ryan. That's right. As a legend, what was your exact title? The chief policy director for the House Republicans. Yep. Right. And so, I mean, for me, as a as a Democrat, listening to Ryan for a long time, what I thought I recognized was somebody actually grappling with issues and trying to solve them and thinking about what's best for the, mm-hmm. the country. But what I've started to see is somebody making really political decisions that almost seem like he knows are against what's right. Do you see the same thing? Look, it, I, I say all of this with, I mean, it, it pains me to, to think along these lines and to say these things because 
Look, I think Paul Ryan is is a good man. I think he cares deeply about this country. I think he cares deeply about the people of this country. He's a policy wonk, and, and he would agree to that. He's proud of it. And I consider myself uh, sort of of the same mold to a degree. Uh, he is prioritizing advancing policies that he thinks are critical for the American people uh, over confronting Donald Trump. I understand that that's, that's the decision that he's made. Obviously, I've made another, I've taken a different approach. And the reason why I've taken the approach I have, which is to confront Donald Trump and sort of put the other policy issues a little bit on the side while we ensure that our democracy and our constitution are, are, are upheld, uh, is because I, I think that without, without a functioning republic or democracy, without adherence to our constitution, then everything just slides and it doesn't matter. Nothing else matters in, in my way of thinking. So yes, I, to answer your question, I do wish that we would see more pushback from Paul Ryan at this point. I think it's time for that. I think we'll see more opportunities for him to do that. I hope that he will. Um, but I, I will tell you, Brian, that ultimately it falls upon us, we, the American people, to make it a political imperative for them to do it. How? I mean, our relationship online, we started following each other on Twitter, and then I asked yeah. you this question yeah. about what the average American can do, right. and you answered, and this answer you gave, this 10-point answer went super viral. Right. Um, and so I ended up in all these articles about you yeah. everywhere because I asked the question. Yeah. Um, and your answer, while excellent, um, still, I think, left you as well feeling like, mm. I wish there were more yeah. that I we could do to sort of force action. Mm. Because there is, it seems to me, beyond a coarsening, well, I mean, you you, you see it. Almost like this uh, obeisance being paid to this to Trump and Steve Bannon, as though they're a king and the king's mm -hmm. secret whisper. Mm -hmm. How do you think we agitate to get? What do you see now as your role in agitating to get them to uh, stand firm against it? Well, I think we have to make it a political imperative for members of Congress to stand up when necessary, you know, and look, maybe it won't be necessary. I'll tell you, Brian, I still have hope that things are going to be okay, but you, but we have, there are enough negative signals out there that, um, that we need to, we need to be active and we need to organize and we need to, uh, we need to take action. So what is that? That means every American must make it a personal habit to engage weekly, if not daily, with their representatives in Congress. That means calling every day. That means showing up to visit their local office or does going to work? Washington. It does work. Do they do people? The, yeah, does, explain how it works. It absolutely works. I mean, I can tell you that, you know, because I spent you know, almost four years there, uh, it matters when people show up. It matters when people call. Uh, I would recommend that the two people send emails too. that can be effective. But the, the, the better thing to do is to call and or show up in person at your representative's door, at your representative's door. They all have local offices, so you can do it you know, locally or you can go to Washington. You should do both if you can, um, but call and show up in person. Uh, and then in addition to that, be very active on social media. That's another opportunity. I mean, you see here that President Trump is engaging as, as his primary platform on Twitter. Uh, and so that's where you have an opportunity to engage him back. And so, and that's, uh, I spent a lot of time doing Obviously, that. I'm doing yeah, that too. You're doing that too. But, but we all need to do that. And not only with Donald Trump, but with our elected representatives in Congress. And then it gets into, to, to those of us who have capabilities that go beyond, you know, just calling or showing up, you know, donate to causes that, that support, uh, candidates who are standing up to Trump when necessary, standing or more positively standing up for our constitution, standing up for our democracy, donate to their campaigns. If they're not doing that, donate to their opponents. Um, now if yeah. you see personally that the, it's funny, you've used the word conservative and not the word Republican. And I, I think that's advisedly because, uh, it's not clear that Republicans are acting in conservative, traditionally conservative Many ways. Yeah. And so if they're not, are you willing to support Democrats if you get the sense that they're going to hold them accountable as opposed to Republicans? 
I mean, that's that's going to be a tough question for a lot of conservatives. I mean, we... I'm, I'm not asking them. I'm asking Evan McConnell. Yeah, yeah, I know. Well, for me and for a lot of people, I mean, you know, I ran for president because like I I didn't feel like I could vote for Hillary Clinton for a variety yeah. of reasons. I didn't... I thought that she was corrupt. Now, I'll say that I imagined and was correct, I think, so far that her level of corruption was child's play compared to what we see in Donald Trump already. Uh, yeah, but I don't, I don't think she was corrupt, but we don't. I don't want. Yeah, we I don't know. have to litigate yeah, that. Yeah, We're right, past exactly. it. Let's not litigate. Yeah, yeah. It. But it's. I mean, certainly, it's sort of you, you. Sort of look at you know. Email no more server. corrupt than anyone who's been president for the last long time is all I'd say. But that doesn't sure. But it, but it, we're it, we're in a new yes, space it's a whole right other, now. It's a whole I other mean, the game. Orders now. Yeah. of magnitude. That's right, and I and I do agree with that. So it's um, and she didn't kill Vince Foster. Yeah, right. Yeah, uh, right. I was going to say, you know. So so the the point is that yes, I mean it's um it's a very difficult question. Um, I am one that I'm more driven by principle than yeah. I am by party, especially at this point. Um, I, you know, I have serious differences with traditional Democrats over the size of government, which I think is a threat and sets us up for makes us vulnerable to demagogues like Donald Trump. You know, you grow a central government so large, so unaccountable uh, that, you know, we become we become vulnerable to guys like Donald Trump who, who can then take power and and use that enormous, uh, enormously uh, expansive federal government to do whatever they want. Yeah. So it's just it's just hard. Well, that's it's, even what I'm asking. So knowing yeah. all that. Right. And of course, because we both lived through the same time period, I don't have to tell you that between 2000 and 2008. It was the Republicans who grew the government. Oh yeah, bigger they, than Clinton by way both, more than the both first major parties. Clinton. I mean right. that happened. So right. you, you, we can't even. I mean I can't blame the Republicans and you can't blame the Democrats. It well, was, I blame both. It's mission creep, and it, it was just yeah. everybody all deciding that they wanted to play in this playground, uh, and that the bigger the playground was, and hey, let's put in a slide over here and a big uh, water feature, and then suddenly yeah. they were all just living in that, and the rest of us have this little bit of land on the outside of it. But that's, that's right. everybody, right? That's right. But it's more the question of principle. So, so yes, um, I I think um, women should be able to get abortions. You think they shouldn't? That well, or, it's or you not are, quite that simple. Yes, yeah. I know. Yeah. It's not quite that simple, for anyone, right? I don't think yeah, they yeah. should be able to in their ninth month. And you, I, I, what I'm saying is, yeah. we we have fundamental certain fundamental disagreements yeah. about that. Mm-hmm. But if I saw, I know if there were a democratic demagogue, I would be voting for the people I thought were the responsible Republicans to get rid of that. And this is, and this is a very important point. So what is happening now in response to the, the potential threat of authoritarianism in the United States is that the political paradigm is shifting. So it it used to be totally defined by, I mean, you're you're pointing out, you're pro-choice, I'm pro-life. And we could get into the nuance there, and there's some very important ones. But but let's just simplify it for the sake of discussion. So Yeah, that's all I was trying to do was say. Yeah, exactly, right. Because it is an important issue that warrants discussion, but let's stay focused here, we'll stay focused. So anyway, the point is, traditionally, we would be divided by that. And so you'd vote Democrat and I'd vote Republican, and that's how we would think about things. All of that still has merit. You know, that's, you still have your views on that. I still, I'm, you're pro-choice. It's really crucial stuff. It's just very, it's very crucial. But what we, what I see happening now, to the degree that Donald Trump does, uh, does rule or govern like an authoritarian or an autocrat, you are going to have a, a shift in the politics of, of the country in which it becomes pro-authoritarian and anti-authoritarian. And so those of us who are anti-authoritarian, among us will exist differences around, you know, what the size of the central government should be, although I think that the differences on that will start to dissipate, but certainly around sort of reproductive rights or life, you know, the right to life, this sort of thing. Well, we mean, the Second Amendment thing's already shifting in certain ways. So, well, yeah, I'm sure. So, so we'll, but we'll have these differences, but, but there will be some of us who will unite around pre-existing common ground. It doesn't mean that we start agreeing on everything. We won't. But we will say, we've got to stand up to this demagogue. Yes. Together. Why do you think people didn't? So I have, a, like, even just now when I made that, said the thing about Second Amendment, I was reminded of when Trump said the thing about, hey, Second Amendment folks, maybe you have something to say about Hillary's yeah. thing, right? Which was a veiled and not even so veiled threat on right. Hillary Clinton's life. I mean, everybody understood that for what it was. Why do you think those signals didn't penetrate? 
why do you think none of the Republicans running against him were able to articulate the very real danger? Was it just cowardice? Like what? And then how did you, and I'm very interested in this because you've done something heroic a few times in your life. You've made what I think of as a heroic choice, which is sacrificing the life you'd like to live for the life that you feel you're called to live. What does it feel like for you when you decide to stand up? Is it scary? Does it immediately feel right? Like, how do you process it personally? Yeah, well, I mean, scary, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I've always been somebody who's been more comfortable in the shadows, you know, that really, yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, you're sort of trained to be that way in the agency. And we, we would sometimes call ourselves gray men in the agency. So you know, not white, not black, not noticeable, just gray, just sort of blending in, moving around. You know, I'm comfortable being the average white guy in the crowd. Nobody notices. Okay, that's that's what I've always been. And then it, when I worked on in Congress, uh, it was a, a similar sort of thing. I was a, I was a staff. I was a senior leadership staffer, but I wasn't I wasn't a member of Congress. And I was comfortable with that. So that's always been the mode I've been in. Um, but ultimately, I've I've really been driven by service to the country and by doing whatever I think is necessary for the country, and that is what, among you know, more detailed uh, inputs, drove me to making the decision that I did to run for office in the way that I did when I saw that no one else was going to do it. Do, do you always does it? Do you get um, when you're about to make a decision like that? Because it's interesting. A lot of people who listen to this show. Are people actually trying, they're at a moment in their lives where they're trying, they hear some kind of call. Often the people who listen, it's a creative call. How do they access the most creative side of who they are? But it's always really scary and bumpy, like when Chuck Yeager broke the speed barrier. Mm. And then, you know, they, the great thing is when you break the speed barrier, then on the other side, it's actually smooth and peaceful. That's and interesting. so I'm wondering yeah. for you what that you're smiling like it's something you've felt and like I'm wondering where you find the peace. Is it is it bumpy as you're getting there and then is one of the ways you know you're doing the right thing that a sense of calm exists for you in it? Yeah, I mean it was. I I went through I went through a process to make the decision and that that process lasted about 10 days. It involved me trying to learn as much as possible, <laughs> gathering facts, talking to as many people as I could who I trusted to give me information that I could then feed into this this system in my head that would help me, I thought, make a logical decision about what was right to do. Uh, it, along the way, a member of Congress who I spoke to about this said, look, I can't give you advice on this because it's going to be a decision you make based on conviction. And that's just, that's all you. That's in you. And only you can decide. And I thought that was a cop out. I've said that many times. I thought he just he he wasn't he wasn't giving me the advice I needed to receive that he could have given me. What I realized later on, though, is that no matter how much information I had, I couldn't make a, a purely logical decision on this uh, with just input. Right. Sure. Because I, I just don't. None of us have the faculty to 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 understand you know how successful or not it might be or whatever. So bottom line is it came down to me believing. So that someone had to stand up and if no one else would do it, that, that I should do it. And that 10 days, those, those 10 days were, were very bumpy, as you say. So, you know, not a lot of sleep, immense amounts of pressure because I knew that all the, you know, three dozen people had already been approached. People like, you know, Mitt Romney yes. and others had been well, approached. Yeah. They'd already taken a pass. So if I didn't do it, literally no one was going to do it because time was short. All these ballot deadlines were passing. So there was tremendous weight and it was very bumpy and it, it was scary. But another thought that I had now, I'd was, be banging coffee and like horrible <laughs> sandwiches and yeah. I would just abuse my body. You're a Mormon. So what did you do? Like I what lost did you, a lot of weight because right. I didn't eat much. Right. So you just didn't eat or drink. Yeah. Like I wouldn't go to the alcohol which was, either. Which was good because that allowed me to fit into my skinny suit <laughs> for, for the, the campaign. campaign. Yeah. That's great. So that's your mode of panic is actually just to do nothing, not eat. I don't consume any. You fidget. I, you basically just fidget. Uh, I paced around my place a lot. You know, I went yes. for walks. Um, you talked to family? I talked to family. I prayed. Uh, I did these sorts of things. Um, did you try to convince Governor Romney? I had, working through other people, yes, had tried to convince him. I, I did not 
talked to him directly before making my decision uh, in effort in an effort to convince him to do it. Um, but I have been talking to his staff for quite some time, trying to convince them to convince him. Um, but I will tell you that uh, once I realized that somebody needed to do this, once I became convinced of that and became convinced that fear of failure or humiliation wasn't a good enough reason to not That's do so it. That's so key. That I, then, then there was a certain piece that came with that. And then all of a sudden you have launch, right? So yeah. you're then, and that's the moment maybe where you're breaking the, the, the sound barrier. Uh, there's no time to learn. You're just all of a sudden doing it. And that was an interesting part of the, part of the experience too. I, I didn't train to make get, speeches, give a stump and- speech or do a radio or television interview. I just all of a sudden had to do it. And so I can't um, imagine must have felt like being shot out of a rocket. It it really did. It really did. But there was no other choice than just to step into it and do it. And do you think your experience? So I want to go back and do a little bit biographically because um, I know that service is crucial in in your religion. It's one mm-hmm. of the tenets yeah. of yeah. Uh, you practice. So when you went on your mission, did you find that in doing for these people, it did a lot? for you too? Did this notion of just jumping in to unfamiliar terrain and giving it everything you had, did, were you rewarded for that? Did you feel, and was that something you leaned on? Yeah. I think, you know, anytime you, you serve your fellow human beings, you get a reward and we've all felt it. I mean, whether you're, somebody's asking for food money on the street or you're even just giving somebody a, a smile. Uh, whenever you're in the service of, of another human being, you, you feel that it's good and it's right. So you, you get that reward. Um, you know, I, I think for you asked about the Mormon mission, um, you know, one of the things that it requires is for you to just stop everything else in life and go somewhere else for two years. Uh, that idea that there are certain things that are worth giving up everything that's you for. And so that's what people who serve in the military do. That's what, to a lesser degree, you're not going to lose your life in most cases on a Mormon mission, thankfully, but you're, you're giving up at least two years. And so that in its, in and of itself is, is an important lesson that tends to stick with you if you go through that experience. Is it something you're glad that you did? Absolutely. Yeah. And you would tell your own kids. Yeah. I mean, I would hope that they would, they would do it because I know they would benefit a lot from it. Yeah. I mean, just serving. And there are lots of ways to serve, you know, I mean, some people serve in the military. Uh, some people teach in inner city schools that are struggling. You know, some people volunteer at, at kitchens uh, for, for people right. who are struggling. There's so many ways to serve, right? I mean, you don't have to join the military to serve. Well, I saw Book of Mormon, so I think I know you get pretty it. much yeah. what it yeah. is. Yeah, but I just, you know. yeah, service is, it's really important. It's, it's important for our societies, uh, for it to function, but it's also important for us on a personal level. And I would just mention one thing, Brian, about this, one more thing. You know, you tend to, when you're serving, you, you're, you tend to be doing something that's difficult that people don't want to do for money. Yes. Right? So yes. Nobody's willing to do it because there's no money there's in no it money and in it's it. hard. Right. And so you're, you're doing it. Um, and so usually it's also in a scenario where there's, there's some crisis or serious need. And so when you, when you put yourself into that situation, you're learning about something that a lot of people don't know about because a lot of people aren't willing to do that because it requires sacrifice and service to do. And so you grow as a person because sure. of it. And so that's it, so, more of a selfish thing, but it's an important No, thing. I think it's crucial. And, in the, and it leads to the next question I, I had, mm-hmm. which is to me, this is all backdrop for what you see as the proper role for governmental figures now. Mm-hmm. Like what prism should they be using mm-hmm. in deciding how to prosecute their duties, right? Because mm-hmm. you come from a place of service and sacrifice. So it's mm-hmm. natural for you to look at this stuff mm-hmm. as uh, from that pl- place, from a place of, wait a second, um, it's an honor to be here helping you. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, for you, it's like uh, we've been blessed to have this opportunity. The way mm-hmm. I would look at it is like um, there's a I've been given this gift or this opportunity mm-hmm. has shown up, and I happen mm-hmm. to have a skill set that I can apply to help. Mm-hmm. When I look at the people in government, with few exceptions, I don't see that being the place. I don't see that being the place from which most of them are leading. I think there are some. But, uh, and on both sides of the aisle, there are, but I think that they're, 
the rare exceptions. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm wondering, like, what prism do, do you think they should be using in deciding how to prosecute their duties? Mm-hmm. And is it possible? Well, it's a great, important question. The, the prism should be uh, simply putting the interests of the American people before their own. Just that simple. Now, you know, you think back to the American Revolution where, uh, you know, those who signed the Declaration of Independence, by signing that document, they were essentially signing their death warrants. Yes, they were signing away their, their they were saying, we're the guys to kill. That's right, exactly. And so by, by virtue of what they were doing, in order to even play the game, the entrance fee, if you will, was the sacrifice. And they did it in one instant with one act. And there were many acts, but by signing their names, that made it real. Now, let's think about our situation today. You know, if you're going to run for Congress or some role in the government, uh, some elected position, there's, there's not, there's sacrifice involved. There's a great deal of sacrifice involved. Uh, but not that kind of sacrifice. And so as a result, I think it's easier for people who aren't willing to really sacrifice a great deal for the country to end up in those roles. They, because they're the ones that people who aren't willing to sacrifice pursue those roles. They may be thinking about themselves. Uh, and I, and I do want to say that there are plenty of members of Congress who I believe genuinely do at least start off and probably continue on some degree to care, you know, to have an altruistic motivation for, for their work. I do believe that. But over time, that can be eroded by a lot of different things. And one refrain you hear often from members of Congress, which I think is em- emblematic or systematic of this problem, is that they will say, well, I can't do that. I can't stand up for that issue or against that, because if I do it, I'll lose my seat. Okay. Some people have realized, some members of Congress have realized that that's not a good thing to say. It sounds really bad. <laughs> you can't say it out loud anymore. Right. But, 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 but behind plenty, back, but, 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 but behind closed doors, you can. Yeah. And, and I think even, even, you know, in public, many still do. But, and I think many Americans hear that and they, they accept it when they shouldn't. I mean, that is absolutely fundamentally an incorrect way to think about your service. And that's in part why we end up with, uh, other leaders, in in this case, in, in my belief, President Trump, who I don't think is good for the country because so many members said behind closed doors he isn't good for the country, but they weren't willing to stand up to him because they were afraid that they would lose their, their seats in Congress if they did. They were afraid that they would be criticized and attacked by him and by his legion of trolls. Well, I online. think you're getting to like this, this um, what I see as a... Per- pervasive and sadly earned cynicism that most Americans feel toward their leaders and that we think they're calculating all the time instead of leading. And, and I'm, is it, how can we try to, how can we change it? Do you think, I mean, obviously you're here trying to, this is what your mission is, but it seems even, it seems even to me fairly hopeless. You know, I look at that statement that Steve Bannon engineered on Holocaust Remembrance Day. Yeah. I'm an atheist of Jewish descent. Yeah. And I, as somebody wisely said, you know, the way a friend of mine who worked in the White House in the prior administration said, you know, when you're going to put a statement like that, what you do is you, you pull out last year's statement yeah. and you look at it and you basically change a couple names. And yeah. so someone had to redact the word Jewish. And it played into the narrative that a lot of people feel is going on, that this is a, a White House that has no interest in anything other than a traditionally Christian nation. And that's terrifying to people who come from other, any other background because Mm -hmm. Mormons aren't included in that either. In that vision of the, in their view, in their view, I'm saying in their view, Mormons aren't included in that either. So, uh, but I did not hear an outcry. You can imagine the outcry if that happened in the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. And that just feels like cynical politics to me. What does it feel like to you? Well, uh, I mean, you, you have, there are interviews with Steve Bannon or in which Steve Bannon talks about the need to build a, a Christian militia and, and these sorts of strange things. Um, 
Look, the bottom line is... Uh, well, how does that make you feel? That that's the person the closest to the President of the United States? Well, it's, it it's, it's, it's alarming. I mean, it's, it's one of alarming, many, yeah, right? It's yeah. one of many things that are extremely alarming. But, you know, whether you, whether you are part of their privileged group or not, it should be alarming to everyone because... Uh, you know, we, you know, I, and I said this on the campaign trail a lot, you know, an attack on one of us is an attack on all of us and we have to view it that way. Uh, that's why as yeah. an, as, as, uh, an atheist of Jewish descent, yeah. the Muslim ban drives right. me so crazy. And that's right. why calling it even Islamist terrorism yeah. feels to me like the moment you connect religion, I wish there were a better word for terrorism that emanates from these places for these structural reasons. Well, you can't just call it terrorism. Right? Yeah. You can, yeah, you can. You can call it terrorism because the yeah. moment you, to me, the moment you allow religion to be tied to it, mm-hmm. you actually make their argument stronger to their own people because they're able to say, look, they're, they hate us all. Yeah. And you're making it acceptable to next time call it Mormon terrorism, Jewish terrorism, you know, uh, and, and black terrorism, white terror. It just becomes easy, I think, to slice and, and dice that stuff. Um, let, me, let me ask you this. When did you start to believe, so before you were asked to run, and you worked in government as it was, I mean, you worked there even as there was this obstructionist stuff going on on both parties mm-hmm. against whoever was leading. When did you start to feel like the system was facing not just normal stress, but undue stress? You know, are you talking about specific to the presidential campaign? Yeah, that yeah. that the that the uh, that the fundamental fabric of the way our governance works mm-hmm. is actually being tested in a more rigorous and difficult way than it was before. Well, I think for a long time I felt that the two sides of the traditional political spectrum uh, aren't talking to each other enough. Uh, and it's really incredible, you know, after the election I've had, you know, during the election, people who supported me were mostly constitutional conservatives. After the election, I've had a lot of people from the left come over to, uh, which is great because they're seizing that common ground around the defense of our constitution, our democracy, all of that. It's existing common ground. But in that, I, you know, I, I, there have been growing pains associated with that where I see People on the on the left attacking other people on the left because they're they're following me or you know you know commenting on my comments or whatever. You have people on the right attacking me because I say a nice thing about somebody on the left. I mean, it's just the the level of animosity between Americans on the far right and Americans on the far left is really disappointing and counterproductive. I agree. I mean, look, I think you and I have almost opposite Manichaean views on certain issues, true questions of good and evil, true mm-hmm. black and white differences. But but I think we each accept that living in a representative democracy means not always having the laws on our side, yet having to obey those laws, mm-hmm. to argue against them, mm-hmm. to campaign against them, but ultimately mm-hmm. to say those are the laws mm-hmm. of the land if mm-hmm. they're meted out according to this system of mm-hmm. A, a, a governance. I would bet, Brian, though, that we do we do not have that many differences over what is good and evil. I I want to push back on that because I, my what I believe is that that most people, uh, not all people, clearly, and, and as we're we're learning, um, but but most people uh, have a lot of common ground over what is inherently good, y- yes. and we may disagree with how to best implement or achieve that or that sort of thing, but. But I think that there's a lot of common ground around what is ultimately good. For example, you know, uh, poverty in America is something I care a lot about. Um, and that's something that, you know, you may care about too. And we may disagree about how to best The best address. way to solve it. Right. But I really do care about poverty. And I didn't grow, I grew up in a lower middle class family where we had to work really hard. We couldn't turn the heat on in the house. At the end of the month, the food was gone, that sort of thing. Many people have it a lot worse. Um, but my point is just that I've been there. I've lived. I've lived right. it to a degree. I have personal experience but, with it. But I'm talking about things like creationism and being taught in the schools. I don't know what your view is on that. Well, yeah, I think that there's. Well, 
Like, I, I, do you think I, creationism I should be taught in schools? I don't think as that, an example. Really, I don't, I, don't, I don't. I do not think personally that evolution is counter to the idea that there's a God who created our world. Basically, I think it's it's possible that God created through a system of evolution in part, right? So I don't. And some and this is right, but there are people. But what I'm saying is, so there are people though that I respect. Friends of mine, I have friends who are fundamentalist. Uh, very, one very close friend of mine um, is a, a born again Christian. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's a creationist, but could be. But he and I, we could just argue that out together with love. And sure. but we see that entirely differently. But we're willing to say we live in this country that's going to decide this stuff in certain ways. But and what we've I, got a rule of law and we're going to, but, but, but yeah, but, but many I, of our current leaders don't is what I'm getting to is yeah. they don't seem to understand it in the way that most of us do. Yeah. I, I mean, it it seems that this administration may not have a great deal of respect for the rule of law and we're only, we're less than two weeks in. So how do we know if they do, what'll be the telltale? What are the things you're looking for that would make you say, Okay, this is now we have to get into an even different kind of revolutionary modality. Well, going back to the beginning of our discussion, if if court decisions aren't respected, that's going to be a big, big deal. How will we know if they're respected or not? Well, in some cases, it'll be very clear. I mean, look with this this uh, this ban on on uh, refugees and temporary ban on or indefinite ban on Syrian refugees, temporary they say ban on all refugees and and. This, uh, this well, the ninety day order. or one hundred twenty day thing. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, that that whole executive order. There were court decisions that uh, that opposed that, that put a hold on it. But it seems that certain officials in the executive branch didn't respect that, and and some did, and some didn't. And so that's that's unclear. Yeah. So then, but, what happened? So right. So what's supposed to happen, and what do we look for to know? If it's already, if it's slid, and then what do we do? Well, I think that one thing, the important thing to, to recognize is that it's not probably going to be one particular moment where it's absolutely clear that it's happened. Yes. It's going to be over time seeing that the courts no longer have much power. Um, you, you, we may see Donald Trump replacing, um, you know, making decisions about, you know, judges and, and whatnot in a way uh that uh, or or uh, having an impact or deciding who's going to be US attorney uh US attorneys in a way that uh is favorable to him uh they can be removed uh, by him and so they may make decisions based on his desires and be less independent there are all these things that we just have to watch but it's it'll be more of a slide than a sudden boom and and then the hope is that the congress Mm-hmm. would send a message to him that impeachment was on the table to because that's the only that's the tool that they have right the legislative tool mm-hmm. is if you don't if you are breaking the norms and not listening to the judiciary our mm-hmm. responsibility as the legislative is to hold you accountable by saying um you're going to be impeached we are going to try you for this mm-hmm. crime of mm-hmm. abuse of executive power is that correct? It, that's that's right, but it all ultimately comes back to us, Brian, because it, it, our representatives in Congress will only do that if they feel that it's a political imperative. Now, yes, it would okay, be say yes. Our representatives will only do that, if, and this is sad to me, yeah, right. if they feel that it's a political imperative. imperative. Right? Unquestionably, what would be the right thing to do in that situation? In that hypothetical, they would only do if they felt their jobs were in jeopardy. That's that's where I think we are with our leaders now. Now this goes back to another thing we di- we discussed. But you know, again, in, in in the times of the American Revolution, we had leaders perhaps that would just do the right thing for doing the right thing, and they'd have the courage to do it because they already they had less to lose. They signed that paper. They had their lives to. They already had decided that's to lose right. their lives. They were vested in it in such a way that those additional risks were just part of the game that they signed up for. That's not what we have anymore, uh, unfortunately. So in the short term, we just have to make it a political imperative because that's how they're making decisions. In the long term, we need to be proactive about identifying and promoting into office on both sides of the traditional aisle 
people who are wise and honest leaders. And, and that's what we need to do. People who are going to put the interests of the country first. So that's the long-term solution. In the short term, though, the sad reality, I think, is that they're going to make these decisions very politically, and they're sort of proving that every day Yes, in, in most cases. I mean, there are some causes for maybe some hope. Uh, but, but we, it, it is, my point, Brian, is that it is on us. It is on us now. We have to, we need a new era of civic engagement in which we stand up for our democracy and stand up for the constitution. And that's why Mindy Finn, my running mate and I have founded this new organization called Stand Up Republic, which is designed to help Americans stand up for their democracy and for our constitution and for our fundamental, uh, ideals. So just two more things. Um, yeah. How far behind do you think most Americans are in even understanding the way democratic norms are supposed to function and the way in which they're under assault? I think we're pretty far behind at this point. I think we're pretty far behind. I mean, there, there was some recent uh, research that, that came out of Harvard that said that 30% of people born in the 1980s, only 30% think that it's important or essential to live in a democracy. For people who were born in the 1970s, my gener my my people, only 40% of Americans. Yeah, Yasha, Yasha Mook is the guy at, that's at right. Harvard. That's and, right. Yeah, my, my, it so happens that my son, Sam, is works with cl very closely with Oh, Yasha. you serious? Works yeah, he's great. Really yeah. closely with Yasha on yeah. these issues. Yeah. So that's where we are. Now, if you're in, so your, your son knows well about this research and, and maybe you saw that, uh, that if you were born in the 1930s in America, then more than 70% of them think it's essential to live in a democracy. So my point is just that we've lived in relative security and relative sort of well-functioning democracy for the past several decades. And as a result of that, we've just started to take it for granted. And I believe we've, we've lost sight of the true value of liberty. And our founders, they said, many of them in different ways, that they thought we were going to have to relearn the value of liberty every generation or every so often. I think that that time is upon America once again. And, and, and that is why it is so critical that we unite around existing common ground, that is the defense of our democracy, the defense of our constitution, the defense of truth, the defense of the reality that all men the and women are The defense of truth. Yes. Getting to the truth. That's right. Which is another huge sign when, when, when we're dealing with um, alternate facts. Right, right. That's a problem. Yeah. What are two books that someone can read? Like, you know, no one's going back to read Locke. What are two books that you think are, I mean, like you should go back to read Locke. There are these sort of compendiums of libertarian thought, and that doesn't mean Ayn Rand. It means the original liberals with a capital L, libertarian thought starting with Locke and other British guys. Mm -hmm. You can find little excerpts that are easy to make sense of that people should read that stuff. But what do you think a couple books are that, that are readable and, and, and that will help, could help people understand these questions well i one book that, that i really like uh is is a book that a lot of conservatives read but a lot of libertarians read too and and that is the road to serfdom by von hayek and i i think that's a great book to read um it tends to talk more about uh, the growth of this of, of a central government and how that ultimately leads to authoritarianism or fascism uh, he was writing you know around the time of 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 the nazis and and warning against that um i do think i think the rise and fall of the third reich is worth reading that's that's uh, if you've got time if you have that's the time good one. there's right. an audiobook of it that's terrifying but worth right. you can walk around listening but but what I would say... On that day, Hitler was nervous, where he was meeting with the chancellor to ask to become chancellor. But <laughs> yeah. it's really terrifying, but worth it. Uh, it's, it's, an essential, it's an essential read. Yeah. Uh, but I would One say, other. In, yeah. a, in addition to books, uh, there are people stepping forward now uh, who have studied these things and experienced them, lived under authoritarian uh, regimes... And they are commenting. I mean, I we Twitter seems to be the platform. Sarah Kenzor is somebody yeah. I certainly read. Yep. Do you read Sarah? Uh, I do. She she and I follow each other's tweets and commentary. Uh, and we come from different sides of the political spectrum. Yeah. Um, but we both we both lived under authoritarian regimes, and so we we see same of the same. Well, of the liberty. Issues. This fundamental idea of liberty right. is doesn't have a party. Right. That's right. It shouldn't. I mean, it, this is an it American. It should be the cornerstone issue. of every party. That's right. It should be. 
It should be. Another, and a keg in the corner. A, a, liberty. <laughs> and you can't have a party without Mormon, liberty. Right? If you're not Mormon. Yeah. And a keg in the corner. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. Gary Gasparov is another one to follow. Anyway, their voices, David Frum, they're out there. Oh, yeah. But, but the reason why these, these contemporary voices are important is because, uh, is because they're commenting on what's happening now. And, and in order for people to stay informed, uh, they need, they need that. And so it's useful to read the books that give you sort of the historic perspective. Um, but it's also helpful to have people who are expert in these things commenting on the daily events. So just to help people think clearly about what's happening at a time when our president attacks truth is actively trying to undermine truth. We cannot let truth be undermined. If we let truth be undermined, then there's no way to, to hold our government accountable, which is why authoritarians and autocrats, why they attack truth. They don't want to be held accountable. So they attack the press, they attack, they attack other sources of information and truth, and they attack the truth itself so that not even, they can't even be held accountable by reality. And so it is just absolutely fundamentally important that we stand up in the protection of truth. And there are a number of ways we can do it. One way is for us to stand up and be extremely vocal when we see truth being undermined. And anybody, any of us can do that. Follow the lead of others who are doing it if you're not quite sure. Get on Twitter. That's where the commentary is easy to access. But be very, very vocal. The other thing you can do is support the media, frankly. And the best way to do that is through subscriptions. Make sure that, you know, you find a couple of media outlets that you trust. I won't even say, you know, who they are, which they are. You make those decisions, who you think you can trust, and buy a subscription. Because if if these uh, platforms have you know, subscription funding, then that enables them to do more higher quality reporting that doesn't just depend on the number of clicks they get. And and so it's just subscription. Yeah, I, today really I, I resubscribed to The Atlantic, first yeah. of all, for Ta-Nehisi Coates, yeah. but also because that's real journalism and that's I right. want to support it, that's not right. just online, but right. in a real way. That's right. That's super important. Great. Evan, I can't thank you enough for doing this. Thank you, Brian. Um, you're doing really important work. And uh, I, I hope that this isn't the last time you've run for office. Uh, thank you. Brian. I hope you'll do it again. Thank you. Um, and then we can argue about the substance That's right. uh, That's of right. the stuff that you believe in. I, That's right. I can't promise you my vote, but I want you out there. I want <laughs> yeah. you out there doing it. Um, I understand. Uh, but, uh, people can find you at Evan McMullen is your, is what's your Twitter handle? Yeah. Uh, at Evan underscore McMullen. And you can also go to our organization's website, standuprepublic.com. We're building this organization. It will be a place where, uh, we invite all Americans to come in the defense of our democracy. So do that. You can find me at Brian Koppelman on Twitter. You can also email me. I'm responding to emails and engaging uh, at the moment, bk at gmail.com. It may take me a little bit of time to get back to you, but I will. I want to know what you think about this conversation. I want to know what you're doing to resist. I want to know if you think that there's a need uh, to resist and, um, and who else you want me talking to and engaging with on this subject. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Evan, thanks for doing this. Thanks, Brian.